Hi everyone, welcome to State of Sustainability where we unpack the kind of stickier sustainability issues. Today we're going to talk about data, how to collect your data, how to manage your data, how to manage for other goals that you've got with your data um, and lots of other bits that I'm probably forgetting at this point. <laughs> That's fine and just a word of warning, Izzy has her puppy Zephyr in the room so if you hear any sort of squeals and grunts and groans that is that is neither of us uh, and please forgive the interruptions. Or it might be Seth's response to my tricky questions. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> You'll never know. <laughs> Okay, well, I think just to start us off, how do you figure out what is important around your sustainability data? I think the first thing is that data is a means to an end. And so the business needs to first identify within the context of the mission and what they're trying to achieve, what are the objective outcomes that are important? And so let's take the example of a consumer-facing business. In their context, circularity might be one of the big uh, mission-oriented goals or outcomes that they want to work towards. And therefore, they then move to the next piece, which is they define what are the KPIs or metrics that would define success there. And that's important before you get to the data piece. And so in the case of this consumer business with circularity, a key, out, a key metric might be uh, recyclability, which is different to recycled content. Recyclability would be, in a nutshell, what are the odds that this product would be recycled? And so if you think of most consumer products, if you're lucky, the actual recyclability rate is probably 1 in 20, where 1 in 20 times that product or 1 20th of that product material might actually end up being recycled, which is very different to just the fact that the materials in theory in isolation could be recycled. So if you've got this kind of recyclability goal where you want to take it from 1 in 20 to 1 in 4, which means that one in four times this product will be recycled or component parts will be recycled. That's the sort of the, the North Star for that mission-oriented goal. And then you think about what is the data that you need. So now you know what you want to track, which is recyclability. You would then work towards where, do I, where would I actually source this data so that I can measure that? What are all the feeders, the systems that would feed in data inputs so that I could get as an output this actual number? And that's obviously quite complicated and leads you to the system design of where you would actually source this data, how you would process it, how you would verify and validate it, and make sure that it makes sense. Uh, so that's the kind of first thing that I would really think about in terms of just setting up what's important. Yeah. And then maybe taking a bigger look at your data infrastructure. Like what, what should you prioritize? So... I think that if you if you look, if we sort of take a step back and look at industry in general and try and understand what metrics they're solving for, we've talked about one example where we said for a consumer business in this, this sort of circularity mission, here's what could be an, an instance. But if you look at some archetypes, most businesses, and certainly the ones that I've come across, are trying to solve for greenhouse gas emissions plus a few other things. And I think the best performers realize that they can't solve for everything. Mm -hmm. So they pick a bundle of, of topics or issues that they want to care about defined by the nature of their business. So to just stick with, let's say, the consumer goods example, 
as a brand, you might prioritize greenhouse gas emissions, uh, circularity or single-use plastic or something related to that, uh, water, and maybe biodiversity or nature or something related to that space. And so these might be the, the four categories or four areas that you're prioritizing. Whereas for the company supplying you with your packaging material, let's say it's aluminum cans, mm -hmm. for example, they might actually care about slightly different things. It might again be greenhouse gas emissions because that's important for their part of the contribution to the end product. But they might not care so much about, let's say, uh, let's say nature and biodiversity that would be more important potentially for the sugar provider into a beverage company, but not necessarily for the aluminum can provider. I'm generalizing here to an extent. On the other hand, this aluminum can business being a manufacturing business might actually care quite a lot about skill development and technical training because that's an issue that is very really synergistic with how they think about impact in their business context. Mm -hmm. If you go a step further back and you think about the a company providing the can maker with aluminum can sheet, or let's say even further back in the mining company, then suddenly community rights become super important because it's your license to operate that allows you to extract minerals and materials from a particular location. So you get these slightly different bundles or combinations of topics or metrics that you're solving for, for different sorts of businesses. And so I would kind of start with that. So again, take the mission. What do you care about? What is the set of things that you care about? And ideally, how can you design a system that can solve for the most important challenge while also potentially covering a few of the other areas in tandem or together? Mm -hmm. And I think from our perspective, we've heard a lot of people talk around data security. Like I'm sending my data via like Gmail or in picture formats or in all these different ways which aren't specifically secure. Is that another consideration? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a, a, a number of different aspects to this. Uh, let's say one is first the security point, and let's touch on that a bit. And then the other is is generally what should be important. Mm -hmm. And so if I start with security maybe, it's actually quite surprising how low data security standards are when it comes to sustainability data. You really have all sorts. And most companies that are trying to engage their suppliers, just to give one example, are doing that over email and are asking for data over email. Mm -hmm. And so they're sending a, a data request and they're getting the data request back and all that is taking place over email. That creates a massive management problem on just, just in terms of staying on top of all this. But it also actually, it is, it is, it is a not, not a secure way to exchange data, and it wouldn't pass muster in any other business context for even the same companies. So I think there is a big security challenge that I think companies need to take more seriously and are starting to take more seriously as this data becomes more business sensitive, as sustainability data becomes more business sensitive. More generally, I think if you think about what the topics or areas are in terms of capability that businesses should think about when they approach sustainability data. Uh, what I usually look for is digitization first, which is can you actually just get this data into a digital format where it can be worked with? And so think about, you know, let's say, again, the JPEGs, the PNGs, all this sort of stuff, and you actually just want this in some sort of a tabular structure where you can play around with it and run analysis on it. 
And the same is true for a lot of different data categories right now being used for sustainability. It, it doesn't exist in a, in a structured way where you can use it. The second I would think about is granularity. This is actually quite a big problem that will need to be resolved very soon because most companies that are working on their scope three are working on it at a category level or a high level, which means that they're actually aggregating before they run the calculation. So they're saying, uh, I buy, let's say, $100,000 of potatoes, and that's one line item, and I multiply that number by an emissions factor for a dollar of potatoes, and that gives me one output. That in itself obviously has accuracy problems because that's not representative of what your potatoes might actually look like based on where you bought them from. But also it means that you no longer have the detail underneath that. You no longer have the granularity to be able to pinpoint the different weights of potatoes bought from different places at different times. And actually, you know, from a granularity perspective, you want to know weights, locations, mm -hmm. timestamp at least. Ideally, you even want to know something around the processes or the activities involved in generating that product. And that's going to be increasingly important for supply chain data. And that's what I mean by granularity. So you want the digitization, you want it in a structure that you can play around with it. But then you also want the granularity where you want it at a, you want enough detail that even if you're not going to use it all right now, you can use it later if you need to. Uh, and then the final thing I would think about is, is more around uh, usability or flexibility. And that's also, I think, an under-addressed topic right now. And what I look at there is, is things like tagging and categorization. So if you think of when we process data, let's say at Altruistic, we apply many different tags to each data item. So we have, again, timestamp, location, weight, maybe activities. Let's say it's an agricultural product. You'd have organic, inorganic. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of different associations that you need to create for that data item to ultimately be matched against an assumption. And if you think of an emissions factor or a water factor, that's basically an assumption and your ability to match that assumption to your data depends on how accurately or how thoroughly you have classified both sets of data, yep. especially if you want to do it at scale. When you want to move from a thousand calculations to generate your, let's say, emissions overview to a hundred thousand calculations, and in the case of some of our customers, maybe even a hundred million calculations. Mm. So that I, those three things I, I would certainly look at. And I think this lends itself nicely to my next question, which is around, well, like, I think a lot of people are seeing different regulations, different requirements coming down the line, which is like around biodiversity, water, all those different other impact metrics. How do you set your infrastructure up now to manage for those maybe like future goals? Yeah. Let me maybe start actually with how we've approached the problem at Altruistic, because I think that We've tried to approach it in a customer-centric problem, and so I think the same logic may apply to most businesses that are listening in on this. And so uh, about two years ago, three years ago, most larger businesses started creating something called a materiality matrix. Mm -hmm. And this materiality matrix would basically be a two-by-two two graph, and it would have uh, what is an impact metric that, we, uh, that our consumers care about or that we care about versus how easy is it for us to get a handle on this, basically. Ease and complexity is usually most two-by-twos in some way. 
And so depending on the nature of the business, you'd have slightly different things in that top right-hand corner where it's, uh, it's, it's super important to us or our customers and it's really easy, let's say, for us to, to actually move on this. And there'll be then combination of, combinations of metrics that the business decides to, to move on. Uh, so for us, we, we take that as one input, which is what does the business, what, is, what matters to business? And then the second is how similar is this to what we're solving for as our primary goal? So in the case of altruistic, but also most companies that we at least see, greenhouse gas emissions are again the the you know generally speaking the dominant metric that they're solving for in sustainability and then we look at what is similar to this in structure so we we see water as similar uh, we see waste as similar we see deforestation as similar just as a few examples and there are clear reasons for why that's the case because all three of these actually dovetail with an appropriate greenhouse gas emissions calculation as well just when you're solving for greenhouse gas. When you're solving for greenhouse gas, you need to get water data, you need to get waste data, and you will increasingly need to understand land use, land use change, land management impact as well, which will include deforestation. So all these things you're going to have to do anyway to get to where you want to get to on greenhouse gas uh, emissions data management, which means that the incremental challenge of solving for these metrics in their own right which means going the extra mile from simply data gathering and computing the emissions impact to doing exactly the same data gathering and actually generating outputs, analytics, visualizations in its own right, there's actually a fairly small bridge to get there. So that, I think, gives you already a way to to create a basket of things that you might focus on. And then you sort of think, well, what's now completely different? And so, you know, again, to look at the ESG classification, most social metrics will be totally different to this. And that's why, generally speaking, we find that companies that are interested in ESG tracking and measurement holistically and want to manage that somehow all together within the same team all at once, those companies tend to be either small businesses or businesses with a very low level of complexity in their environmental data, and they're able to be very high level and broad in their approach versus others who need to be very deep because they're either large businesses or they have environmental complexity, food, apparel, personal care, good, good examples. And, and, and so that all already silos out some areas which will be difficult to focus on in tandem, but they can get that level of depth with a few other environmental metrics. That's the plus point. They're going so deep that they actually start touching other environmental metrics as well. And so they can build a data system that solves for that too. And I think in a previous event that we hosted with Henry Dimbleby, that you were talking a lot about the synergies between carbon data, nutritional data, and then maybe, yeah, further down the line, biodiversity data. And it's interesting how you can find those, like, you know, hotspots where you can actually use your data across all those different ranges. Yeah, I think that, I think that there are aspects to which that is true and aspects to which that is is just going to be a lot more challenging. And so the ways in which that's true is when you look at most companies today, I've yet to find a company today that knows how to measure biodiversity impact. And if you think of how you would approach that sort of a problem, you would either look at outputs or you'd look at inputs. And by that, I mean you could look at species density, let's say insect population mm. uh, range and density 
as an output and has that increased or decreased. And that's really difficult to, to measure and it's really difficult to measure at scale cost effectively, let alone when it's not even your organization and it's a third party supplier. Um, or you can look at inputs, which is correlations. So if I use this type of fertilizer, is this generally known to be good or bad for biodiversity under certain conditions? And the same, you know, for this for this type of pesticide and, and so on, or this type of practice. And my sense is that the inevitable route for business is going to be the latter, so the correlation latter, because yeah. that's the approach that I think would scale right now. And uh, and that approach actually does again dovetail or go in tandem with a lot of the type of qualitative input data that you would need to have for greenhouse gas emissions calculations as well. And so if you're in an industry that has flag compliance as a necessity, so think food, apparel, personal care, pulp and paper, a lot of these sorts of industries, then you're going to need to understand land management practice at the level of suppliers, which will overlap with a lot of these a lot of these activities that have correlations, good or bad, with biodiversity. So I think there's an, a way in which that's definitely mm-hmm. true. At the same time, this whole flag thing is going to be really, really, really difficult. And right now, if you are measuring your scope three emissions, you're in a very, very small category or a very small percentage of business. And if you're doing that, you're probably doing that with spend-based factors as a majority and spend-based data as a majority, and then moving from that to a world where you're doing weights and regions is hard enough. And moving from that to where you're also covering activities and business practice and, again, land management uh, and land use change, this is really, really, really hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, we're working on solving this problem and a number of others are working on solving and we're doing this with our customers. But let's not pretend that it's going to be in any way easy. It's going to be very hard. A data headache. It's a headache indeed. Um, maybe drawing from that, how do you interface with other systems that you're working with to like get the, get this data and align with them to minimize the headache a little bit? Yeah. So I think the first, let's talk first about interfacing with internal systems. And then maybe we can talk about interfacing with external systems or other organizations. With internal systems, uh, you're going you the first step is always to identify what is the landscape of what you need to work with and so there are many different categories involved ranging from logistics data to utilities data the greenhouse gas protocol structure is quite arcane and we've we've tried to actually create an activity oriented structure to match against that but if you if you look at uh, what those categories will be the first step is to just understand across the landscape of my of my data state, where am I going to be getting these different things from? And how many different sources am I going to have? So to give an example, uh, we're in conversation right now with a with a large retail business, and it's difficult, and you know, this is a really, really, really big sort of global retail business with many thousands of outlets. And the, we're, we're, we're figuring out with them whether they might have 50 data sources or 100 data sources or 200 or 300 unique data sources that are going to be feeding in based on that mapping of the landscape. And 
that number is going to be a huge driver of complexity and work and integration load. And that's, that's interesting. It's not that it's good or bad. The aim is to get first to the truth. What is the actual right answer here of what the, the, the landscape looks like? <clears throat> the next piece is going to be, okay, how many of these do we actually need to have a continuous interface with versus a periodic one? What is it that's not going to change very frequently versus something that is? Uh, give an example, right? You might have, uh, let's say, you might you might have a particular a particular invoice that comes in on an annual basis versus a quarterly basis, and actually the numbers don't you don't have new numbers more frequently than that versus something that is a little more like a live feed. There may be some types of data that you're going to need that you only need once, and actually they're unlikely to change. In the case of this retail business, for instance, there's a really interesting and somewhat unique problem, which is that they're large enough that every day they have branches closing and branches opening. And so that element is actually very dynamic. Mm -hmm. But then there's a question of how frequently do you need to capture that? Maybe actually it doesn't matter to you if you have a one-month lag and a reconciliation. Uh, and so I think a lot of these sort of decisions, to, be, to take those decisions early from a design perspective is going to be important. And then you can figure out the interfaces. And the interfaces might be something like an, a direct integration via an API. It might be otherwise. It might actually be that manual data entry is the most efficient way to do this. Mm -hmm. It might be that you want a standardized template for how you capture this data. And so for us at Altruistic, we sort of use a range of different approaches. We might do integrations uh, to connect up to different systems. We might do um, drag and drop approaches to different files. We might do templates. There's, there's quite a, a wide variety. And that's driven by the nature of the companies that we work with, where they tend to have very messy, very fragmented data structures. And that might be, might be you if you're listening in. It might not be. And that's, that's the first thing to really understand. And then on the external side, what about that? The external side is much harder uh, because you're... Um, you know, for anyone who's a Warcraft fan from back in the day, one of the real innovations for Warcraft was this fog of war thing, where for the first time, really, in these sort of strategy games, you couldn't see the other side, and it was hidden by the fog of war, and you only know your your side, your picture, and you don't know what's happening outside. Yeah. It's a little like that, you know, with, with this sort of supply chain data landscape, it's obscured by the fog of war. And so most most companies have limited visibility on what that looks like. And I think there's a couple of ways to approach this. There's probably three approaches that I'm I'm seeing happening. One is where you sort of you 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 coach and cajole and, and ultimately trust that your suppliers are also trying to move on this and you sort of assume that everyone's in it together and this is to an extent not your problem. Mm -hmm. To an extent, this is a common problem to be solved. And so that's the approach, frankly, most businesses are taking. And that's the approach that all businesses will take for some of their suppliers. Even the most forward-leaning businesses won't try and move the whole supply chain. They will ignore some parts, and they should ignore some parts because some parts won't be important for them. So one is just this kind of like try and give an idea of what you're doing and, and explain to the supplier what's going to be needed or expected, but don't really go further in understanding what their side of the picture really looks like. Mm -hmm. A second model, which is what's being deployed right now by a lot of retailers around the world, frankly, not, not just in the UK or Europe, but also the US, is to say, 
here's a standardized data structure and template that we are using on our side and that we want you to use. And we expect you to, to produce your data in this format. However you manage that problem on your side, we don't mind. And you know, to an extent, that's not our concern. We just want you to get it out in this format. And the way to make that a little easier is to try and um, agree on what those formats and structures might look like and have as, as little um, competitive ego in that as possible. Like the more that I think industry accepts commonality there, that's usually better. And that's true for to an extent in other industries as well. Now, I think that that second approach is, is better than the first one because it is a little more honest in accepting that if we're going to get to our collective goals on climate and sustainability, then something needs to change and it's not going to change through option one where we're just trusting to everyone's instincts to go in the right direction in the same direction. The third approach I actually think is the best where we think about interoperability and try and optimize for data standards and data frameworks rather than necessarily uh, sort of the, the, the structures of the templates and the data gathering and collection formats. And what I mean by that is, so if you look at, for example, structures like PACT, uh, backed by the WBCSD, then there you have a framework for how data should be generated and how data should be shared across value chains. And that allows two different sets of systems in two different organizations to exchange data across organizational boundaries for data that has been generated in a conformant way and, and passed along in a conformant way. And if you think of that sort of structure being inherently more flexible because it means that many different systems could be at play, but they can all speak to each other, mm. that's ultimately the best way to do it. You know, And if you think of parallels with that, think of the autonomous vehicle transition where you might ultimately have many different softwares at play across different vehicle types, many different operating systems, but there's huge collective benefit if they can all speak to each other because you can just reduce accident rates and so on. So it's, it's a little similar here where you want the different systems to be able to speak to each other so that they can just all exchange and share data in a conformant way, which will not just help with things like accuracy and ease, but ultimately help with collaboration for change as well, because we'll all be speaking the same language. And what about trust? So like trusting that data that comes in, how do you solve for that like knowing that what your suppliers are giving you is actually correct and what and actually data that you can move on and act on well you know what they say that the best things in life are free but trust costs money <laughs> and that's true for this space as well which is if we just get down to the bare bones of what it takes to trust data especially data that comes to you from another party. Let's assume it's a party outside the business, but the same logic often holds for another party even in the business. But if you want to trust data coming to you from a supplier, you basically need audit or assurance of some form. You need some third party to come in and say this data is off. And and this is true even in, within your own business, by the way. I, I was actually having breakfast with a friend who's a sustainability leader at a large uh, fashion retailer. and uh, And he was vetting he was looking through a lot of the templates that they're using, and he found that one of the entries for one manufacturing site that they, they work with had 10 times the energy use of any other site. And the reason was it was just a the unit error. 
mm. there was another zero or there was just a unit error in the data entry that just I just skewed this. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? It, it's human error and it, it happens and it will happen. And so even if you assume your suppliers are very well-intentioned, this sort of thing happens and it undermines trust. And so if you, if you get around to the fact that trust costs money because assurance costs money, an audit costs money, then you, I think, very quickly get to the logic of where do I need to trust versus where do I actually not care? Mm -hmm. And so if you take, let's say, you know, take some of our largest customers at Altruistic who have 30,000 suppliers. Out of those 30,000 suppliers, it may well be the case that 10,000 suppliers don't actually matter because those 10,000 suppliers are all individually selling you you know, a thousand dollars worth of product, right? Or less than that, frankly, probably a lot less than that. They're selling you very small amounts of stuff. And the, you, the, the stuff that they're selling you might actually not even have much of an environmental intensity and emissions intensity in its own right. So then you get to the question of, does it really matter? If e each of those individual numbers are up or down by 2x or 3x, if the whole of it is actually only 5% of your problem, does it matter, right? It doesn't matter that 5% becomes 7% once you factor in all the errors and typos and disingenuous information. And then you kind of look at the other end where you say, well, maybe actually the top 2,000 or 3,000 suppliers are actually the ones that are most material. These are the ones providing 60% of the environmental footprint of the products that I, and the materials that I'm buying. And then in those ones, it is actually important to have trust. Mm. And then you can start piecing that apart and saying, well, where is there already going to be an audit or an assurance expectation? So some of these companies will be large enough that it's not your headache to make sure that that data is trustworthy. It's the headache of their shareholders because this is required and expected for a public business, for instance, a mm. listed company. And that, I think, is a nice place because then the solving for the trustworthiness is someone else's, someone else's problem. And then you, you chip away at this until you get to a very small number of companies, uh, potentially, where trust is important and no one other than you potentially will come in to push towards creating trust. And so now money needs to be spent. But then the other thing to think about is, would you invest in changing the situation here if you did have trustworthy data? And I think that's an interesting question as well, which is this is, let's say, a small supplier or a mid-sized supplier. Their products are of a high environmental impact to you. And if you had incredibly trustworthy data, all you would do is report it versus actually what you would do is you would invest in change programs and invest in supply chain finance to help them alter the situation, shift towards regenerative agriculture, change up the packaging content, something like that. You would view the problem slightly differently in terms of to what extent do you need to trust it, how much trust does it require and how much rigor do you put in to the process and pressure of getting audit and assurance. Sorry, aligning long it with your mission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Aligning it with your mission. I'm going to take us out of the deep, um, dark depths of data. And trust. <laughs> and trust. And steer us more towards the tech team in an organization and how can your tech team help you? And maybe actually being a bit more specific there, like what is the optimal setup of a relationship with a tech team to kind of make this data burden less? Yeah, so I think uh, this, I was reminded recently that this depends a little on business context. In some businesses, 
IT is known as the function that gives you your laptop when you join and that helps you set up your email account and that does very little else. In many other organizations, however, IT is a core part of enabling the business to run smoothly and helping to deliver digital use cases that enable the business to be successful. And so I'm talking a little more in the latter camp Mm -hmm. with my my response to this. But I think that for a, a, a reasonably large or reasonably complex business, you need someone from IT to be your sparring partner in solving the problem. So if we go back to the instance that I described just several minutes ago of understanding the data landscape and where data sits and what's available, you're not going to solve that on your own without the help of someone from IT who can either already have those answers or help you navigate that and help you get to the right place. Similarly, you need that person's support in helping you think through where could you consolidate uh, and where do you need an integration versus not and where can you actually change out how data is gathered. Uh, Just to give an example, Uh, I was actually speaking with a second fashion retailer today, different to the first one. Big day. Big day. (laughs) Uh, And and in this other business, they've been gathering energy data from from their many sites around the world. And they have a template of some sort, and people enter in the kilowatt hours, the units, a bit of other data as well. And they're thinking of digitizing that. And their way of digitizing it is that they should feed this data into a central system where they will use, where they have other data stored as well. So they have, let's say, a central data, data, data warehouse. So they're, they're storing other data types there as well. And they're going to use collectively that data for different purposes. And one use case is going to be, let's say, emissions calculation. And as we're talking through it, the questions I'm asking are around well, are you also capturing the tariff, for instance? Are you capturing the location? Are you capturing the energy provider? Because these these elements will drive whether you're using general grid intensity or whether you're using a different intensity for a different type of provider. If you're buying power, let's say in the UK, different providers, different tariffs will, will be very different energy intensities. And that's going to be important at scale. And so you can solve for that by capturing that data as well in your central system when you're going out, or you can solve for it by creating a parallel process and both get you to the right outcome. But having someone in the IT team help you as your sparring partner on solving for this sort of challenge is important. We've actually been burned the other way where we were working with a, a, um, a company that has a data aggregation tool that they've been using. And and actually, we we see this in a couple of instances. One instance, people around the world in their different teams are entering energy data in this way. And we had to then figure out that we have to move behind their data aggregation layer to the source data. And in the other instance, there's another company that we work with that has an energy management system where people are feeding in the invoices, but then also manually typing in the data on the invoices. And there's just a lot of room in these sorts of things to streamline if you have a sparring partner for IT. So I think that relationship is really important to establish early on. Mm. On the topic of relationships, what about like optimal relationships with third parties? Like how do you what do you look for there? I think that the status quo of what I'm seeing in the market is that most companies want to find a few partners that they trust and rely on those partners in a retainer-like relationship 
where those partners are just with them on everything related to all of these topics that are a new challenge. And what I mean by that is they'll find, let's say, a consultancy or a software or a few different players of this type, and they will look to them to help them navigate everything within sustainability because they build up that reliance on these partners. And I think that can be a good thing. Mm. And it, 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 it can feel secure and safe to actually have people in your camp helping you on this. And I think that in the short term, that's fine. I think in the longer term, companies need to move towards having ramp up and ramp down models for different types of support. And the category of support of third party where you actually do need a retainer-like relationship is something that looks and feels like, like SaaS, like software as a service. There might actually be very few of those potentially or fewer than there are right now. And a lot of the consulting relationships that, that are in play should actually be more like ramp up, ramp down relationships where you bring in a consulting partner, let's say, to help you uh, embed a new system or a new process, solve a particular challenge, and then kind of fade back into the background and come back when you need them to. And I think that'll happen once people feel a little more comfortable and secure. Uh, incidentally, if I talk a little bit about the software side, I think that uh, two years ago, we were seeing a lot of experimentation in software and a lot of short-term agreements, which were driven by companies trying to understand, A, is this problem a real problem that is here to last? And maybe the person commissioning the software felt that it was, but the person holding the budget didn't. And B, is this partner a partner that I want to continue working with and that is reliable? And that's because, again, there are a lot of startups in this space. Mm. And I think that we're now moving towards more mature startups or more mature software providers, even the incumbents or established players now have more mature offerings and more established and more solid budgets and expectations that the plan is here for the long term. And as a result, I think we're seeing slightly longer contract durations in general as well as companies uh, settle down with the right software partners as well and, and say, look, we we, 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 we trust this now, we like it, we think it's reliable, we think it works, either because we've used it already in a shorter-term way or because our peers have used it or because we've been convinced over the last several months that this can really solve our problem and therefore we're happy to commit. Uh, one example from our territory is we've recently won a contract with a, a business that has worked with two other of our peers over the last 18 months. And in one case, the peer, I think, shut down. In a second case, the, the peer has, has re had really struggled to deliver value. And, you know, now, and, 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 and now, now there's us. And as a result, the process of really understanding if we were the right fit was a very diligent process. And, you know, at times it probably felt like quite a lot to us, mm -hmm. but we understood where it was coming from. It was very detailed, very granular, many different conversations, many different stages, uh, and a range of stakeholders involved. But you could tell that the person leading the process on the customer side, on the business side, wanted to really, really, really be sure this time. Yeah. And having established that certainty, wanted to actually then contract for a longer-term contract because they'd invested that amount of time in understanding the partner up front. Incidentally, the, the, the second fashion company I was talking about one of the first things they said to me in the call was, we get pitched a lot and we see a lot of software companies and 
we have a need, but we're not sure how to choose from all these different players. And my advice to companies there is always run a process, define what you need, and just run a competitive process, which Mm -hmm. is always the right answer. Uh, And we actually always like that because we do well in those processes. We are self-interested. We like that. But it also is genuinely, genuinely the better answer for the customer, and it helps both sides understand each other better in a structured way rather than an ad hoc way, which leads to alignment of expectations mm-hmm. and alignment of actual commitments and deliverables and outputs, all of which is super important. Yeah. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Um, Seth, I'm going to hand it back to you to do a quick summary <laughs> of everything we've covered. Um, but I will fill in the gaps. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful. I mean, I, I think that we've... We've talked in general about setting up your data system for success from the get-go. We started with a bit of a ramble around mission and how you connect mission to outcomes and goals and what type of data you should look for and think about. We've talked about the filters through which you should look at your data journey, digitization, granularity, flexibility, usability, those, those aspects. We touched a bit on data security. We talked about how different systems should integrate, whether it's within the business Uh, or with your suppliers. We've talked about how to work with different sorts of partners, whether they're partners like the IT team within your business or whether they're third-party partners as well. Uh, And and really, I I hope this sets most of our listeners up in a way that seems credible and sensible as, as an approach to take. You did that very well, and I actually think you did cover every point, which is very impressive. Would love, as always, any feedback and also any content that you want to see covered or any themes or topics that you don't think we've answered yet. Um, drop Seth a message or um, on our State of Sustainability Hub, which is our resource hub. There's some input fields there where you can drop any questions. Um, thank you so much for joining. No, my pleasure. Thank you. I hope it was a fun conversation for you and I hope it was a fun <laughs> conversation for our listeners as well. It definitely was for Zephyr in the corner. He's napping. (laughs) Cool. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.